Please have a seat. Good morning. Thanks for joining us uh, this morning. When uh, my children were young, we had some friends over to the house, and we were in the backyard and the, playing, and the kids were on a swing. And it was about the time to call it a day for them and said, hey, kids, uh, it's time to come in and take a bath. They launched off those swings and raced into the bathtub. And my friend said, wow, your children are so obedient. And I said, no, maybe, I don't know, but that's not obedience. They like taking baths more than they like swinging. You don't know what obedience is until someone on authority over you says no. And then you wait for it and to see if there's a kaboom that comes later. When we talk, just to make sure we understand what obedience is, because when God says to do something, do we submit to what God says or do we blow it up? That's, that's what it means to obey is to do what he says. Sometimes we congratulate ourselves for being obedient or serving other people when it turns out, you know, it's not a bad way to live and we like the way it feels when we serve other people. Well, here's the thing. Today, we're going to look at the way David lives his life in the context of obedience. And this is, today, is one of the reasons that God himself calls David a man after my own heart. Because of how this plays itself out. Again, when God says no, wait for it, there's no kaboom with David. He obeys. Now, to fully appreciate and the grasp of the temptation before David, we have to have a context. And so, if you don't mind, I'm going to summarize rather quickly so that when that moment comes, we can feel what he felt to see why he made the choices he, he, he did. So, when he was a boy, Samuel anoints him to be the next king. He knows that. In 1 Samuel chapter 17, he dismembers a giant Philistine. In chapter 18, the theme was everybody loves David. Well, almost. And the narrator makes a list of six people groups that love David. And then it happens. Everything changes. Saul become, be, begins his descent into the heart of darkness. And here's how chapter 18 ends. And when Saul realized that Jehovah was with David and that everyone loved David, Saul became still even more afraid of David, and Saul remained his enemy for the rest of his days. Saul remained his enemies for the rest of his days. Friends, he will lose it in his envy for David. And again, just to remind you what happened between chapters, the end of chapter 18 and, verse, and chapter 22, where we looked last week, he, David loses everyone he loves, and everyone who loves David is gone. And, and Saul is singularly responsible for that. And, and not only losing the people that he loves and those things that he loves and that love him, he Saul is responsible for detaching David partially from his own faith and from his own dignity. Everything we know of David by chapter 22 is gone. Everything David understands about himself has unraveled. And that's the point that's bringing this to, to context is that David, listen, David is hungry. 
We don't make good decisions when we're hungry. When we're hungry physically or spiritually or emotionally or all of the above, temptations are amplified, aren't they? And we can somehow justify decisions that we wouldn't make otherwise. You never go to the store hungry. (laughs) When we're hungry for companionship, when we're lonely, we find ourselves saying things and doing things that we wouldn't do otherwise with people that we would probably never associate with. Because when you're hungry, your temptations are amplified. And David is hungry for justice. David is trying to figure out where God is. He's doubting whether or not God is at work in the life around him. And so there's this blinding injustice that's pervasive in all of Israel, and he's trying to figure out what's going to happen next. And listen, we have now in our story, now we've just caught up, now in our story, Saul has snapped the chain to sanity, and now his cruelty will be unleashed on innocence. We're going to want justice at this. Just uh, here's what happens in the story. If you remember, David, when he was running from Saul, goes to a priest Ahimelech, and he lies to the priest, and he says, hey, I'm on a secret mission from Saul, and I need a sword and some food, and Ahimelech gives him that. Now, Saul has found out about Ahimelech and is interrogating him, and he says, okay, so what's the thing about you conspiring with David against me? Is it true that you gave him food and a sword? I'll bet you prayed for him, didn't you? And you know that David is an enemy of mine, and he's trying to kill me, right? And this is how Ahimelech, the priest, responds. Ahimelech answered the king. He's like, what are you talking about? Who of all of your servants is as loyal as David? the king's son-in-law, the captain of the bodyguard, and highly respected in your household. Was that the first time I prayed for him? Of course not. (laughs) Let not the king accuse your servant or your servants because he doesn't know anything about this whole affair. And Saul, unchained from sanity, says, you, Ahimelech, will die and your whole family father's family will perish today. And he turns to his soldiers and says, kill them, kill them all. Well, no one in the Israeli soldiers, none in the Israeli army is going to follow that type of immoral command. They won't have anything to do with murdering priests. But there is one that's not from Israel. Visualize this. Feel this in your chest. This is what happens next. The king then ordered Doeg, you turn and strike down these priests, not just Ahimelech. And Doeg, the Edomite, not Israeli, turned and struck them down. That day he killed 85 men who wore the linen ephod. He also put to death the whole town of Nob, the town of the priests, with its men, its women, its children, its infants, and its cattle and donkeys and sheep. Are you feeling the need for vengeance here? Is there something welling up within you that says, like a rage inside, that's saying, you know, this story, you know what this story needs? It needs revenge. It needs justice. It needs it now. No, it needs it 19 verses ago before Saul ever shows up in this town of priests called Nob. I mean, justice is late at this point. And David... He's hungry for justice. David has lost to Saul. He's he's homeless. 
He's hopeless. And David finds out about this mass murder of women and children and infants. And I'm just asking, am I the only one here that says we got to get some justice done? We got to make things right here? Is there? I know just the guy to do this. He's a giant killer. Won't even need a sword. And he can take him out with a flick of a rock. I cannot wait for these two men to meet, David and Saul, because then finally things will be right in Israel again. He's the next anointed king, right? Everybody wants David to be king. Everybody wants this tyrant's head to be on a spit. And then it happens. 1 Samuel chapter 24, boom. Saul is pursuing David, finds him in En Gedi. It's pretty far south over by the Dead Sea. There's a bunch of caves, the spring area, and there's a bunch of caves in there. In the caves, there's hundreds of them, maybe even thousands of them, and they're bigger than you think. And David's in one of them with his three to 600 soldiers deep inside the cave. It gets kind of earthy here. Saul, the king, he has to go to the bathroom. It's a true story. And so he gets ready to go to the bathroom and goes inside the cave and leaves his garments behind. And this is where you hear, caught him with your pants down. Start it right here. <laughs> yeah, it's true. And so Saul, caught with his pants down, here's how everyone interprets the sovereignty of God. And then the men said, verse 4, this is the day Jehovah spoke about when he said, I will give you your enemy into your hands for you to deal with the way you wish. And so David crept up unnoticed and cut the corner of Saul's robe off. Then it gets good. Nothing happens. Afterwards, David was conscience stricken. His heart was struck for having cut off the corner of the robe. And so he said to his men, Jehovah forbid that I should do any such thing to my master, the Jehovah's anointed, or lift a hand against him, for he is anointed by Jehovah. With these words, David rebuked the men and did not allow them to attack Saul. And Saul left the cave and went on his way. Everything within David is screaming for justice. Everything outside of David is screaming for justice. And this is fresh off of him killing a whole town of priests with women and children and pets. Justice is at the hands of David. He goes to do that, and God says no. Wait for it. There's no kaboom. Because David understands authority, that God has appointed Saul to be king over him. It says his conscience is stricken. One translation says it smoked within him. And not only does he feel guilty for just cutting a piece of this man's garment, he holds his men back from doing any injury to a crazy, murderous tyrant. And... <laughs> He chooses it would be better to continue to suffer than to find himself in a place of disobedience. When, David get, when Saul gets a safe distance from the cave, David follows him out and calls to him, verse 8, and then David went out of the cave and called to Saul and said, my Lord and King, 
When Saul looked behind him, David bowed down and prostrated himself with his face on the ground because that's what you do before a king, whether you respect him or not. And he said to Saul, why would you listen to your men that say David is bent on harming you? This day, this day, you have, been, you have seen with your own eyes how Jehovah delivered you into my hands into that cave. And some urged me to kill you, but I spared you. And I said to them, I will not lift my hand against my master because he is Jehovah's anointed. Uh, don't get tired of the word anointed. He said it three times. He'll say it four more times in our story. It's the idea that God's sovereign hand has placed this king over David with authority. Authority Authority is a very major theme in the Bible. And maybe the top three themes in the Bible, authority is that. When the Bible talks about authority, this is what it means. Authority is given by God. And we respond with that authority. If we have authority, we are to use it righteously, generally speaking, to serve for a purpose. Or abuse it, and we'll be judged for that. We're judged by authority. Okay, We're judged by our use of authority. We're judged by our abuse of authority. That's part one. The other part is, is when we are under authority, we are judged by whether we submit to authority or whether we blow it up. But the, the universe is run by authority. That's the deeper physics that's taking place in the world, even in the spiritual world. The use of authority, the use and abuse of authority, and the submission or the rebellion towards authority. And by the way, David not blowing up in his submission to authority, that's why God himself says to, about David, that's a man after God's own heart. Listen, here's the world was designed by God to be in order, not in chaos, to be in harmony, not noise, to be beautiful, not ugly. Now, for those things to take place, you have, okay, the deeper physics here, you have to have authority. In the original design, authority was used so that that person in authority could serve others for a purpose. And if there's authority, there needs to be submission to authority. And and they are to follow directions well with respect. So even after the fall, by the way, the transition, all those values stay the same. Authority, abuse or use. Now we have to add abuse. Submission or rebellion. Authority is a major value in God's kingdom. And the point is, is David is showing his faith by trusting in the sovereignty of God, by submitting to the crazy authority that's put over him. And, and while his emotions are saying yes, and while his circumstances are saying yes, and while his troops are saying, oh, this is God's will that you should put a man in authority to death, God says no. And when God says no, David's fine. There's no kaboom with this. And David shows that by when he gets spears thrown at him by Saul, he does not pick them up and throw them back. He chooses to flee. David does not speak ill of Saul. And David chooses not to divide the kingdom. And friends, oh, he could divide the kingdom. Did I show you? Everyone, everybody loves David. Just this one guy. But he could be missing in action pretty soon. David's view of the world could be simply put, it could, again, it's, it transcends all the, uh, the testaments. David could summarize 
his view of authority in Romans chapter 12 and 13. Let me read it. it. It's not hard to understand. It's just hard to stomach. Look what it says. Chapter 12, verse 19 says, Do not take revenge, my dear friends, but leave room for the wrath of God, for it's written, it's mine to avenge. I will repay, says the Lord. Look how many times authority is used in chapter 13 in just the first few verses. Let everyone be subject to governing authorities, for there is no authority except that which God has established. Could I just say that again? Sure. The authorities that exist have been established by God. Consequently, whoever rebels against authority is rebelling against what God has instituted. For those who do so will bring, a bar, will bring judgment upon themselves. And then verse 5, therefore, it is necessary to submit to authority because, uh, maybe not only because uh, the possibility of punishment, but also as a matter of conscience. The idea of matter of conscience, because that's how the, the universe runs. That's the deeper physics. And our souls know that. We know deep down inside that there's authority, and our rebellion to our authority is part of our original bent. It's deep within us to rebel against authority. Has God really said? It's an easy thing to be teased with. And so I don't want us to divert over here today into ethical dilemmas, you know, where someone in authority asks you to do something immoral. That's a great philosophical question that's easily answered, frankly. But today, let's just talk about simple stuff. Authority, the use and abuse of it. Authority, submission or rebellion. That's what we want to talk about. If you want in your minds to keep it simple, if you're in an employment situation and your boss it's not an ethical issue, don't like the way she's running the things, or she's saying we should be working on Saturdays. Okay? Simple, right? When you get to the water cooler, the copier, right, the kitchen, everybody's talking. Are you part of the solution or are you part of the... When you don't like what's happening, David is thinking... In spite of his growling stomach, to avenge his mind, says the Lord, I will repay. That's where his faith is. It is in a future judgment by God that will be based upon the use and abuse of authority and the submission or rebellion of authority. Uh, listen. If you think this is my interpretation of reality, I want you to see in this passage coming up, David's going to bring about the ultimate judgment of Saul, his abuse of authority, and David's submission to that authority multiple times. <laughs> Look at his convictions in his, in his speech to Saul. Okay, Listen to this. May Jehovah judge between you and me, and, and may Jehovah avenge the wrongs that you have done to me. That's what I'm trusting in. But my hand will not touch you. As the old saying goes, from evildoers come evil deeds, and so my hands will not touch you. Here's what he's saying. Saul, if I were you, I would fear God's judgment about the way you're abusing authority. Me? Oh, I fear God's judgment, and that's why I'm submitting to your crazy authority. There's no blood on my hands. He goes on, verse, 20, verse 14, chapter 24, more about judgment. Against whom the king of Israel has come out? Whom are you pursuing? Like a dead dog. I'm a flea. 
May Jehovah, our judge, decide between us. May he consider my cause and uphold it. May he vindicate me by delivering me from your hands. All about judgment. You think this is kind of a David thing? Saul believes this too. Even crazy, maniacal King Saul. Look, at, look how he responds in verse 16 to David. And when David finished saying these things, Saul said, Is that your voice, David, my son? And then he wept out loud. You are more righteous than I. You have treated me well, but I have treated you badly. And when man finds an enemy, does he let him get away unharmed? May Jehovah reward you well for the way you treated me today. And David's thinking, oh, yeah, that's what I believe. That's what I'm trusting in. That's the way I'm living my life. There will be an ultimate judgment where I'm going to be rewarded for the stuff I'm putting up with this very day. That's what I'm counting on that. That's why I'm submitting to you. That's David's values, and those are God's values. Those are kingdom values. You want more? There's so much more. Two chapters later, it's kind of like deja vu all over again. Saul's pursuing David. He's got 3,000 of his best troops. They find him in the hills. They set up a campfire at night. They go to sleep, and God puts them in this deep, sedated sleep. Chapter 26, where he's, everybody's out. And David is up on the hill, and he says, well, let's go. Saul's in the middle of his 3,000 troops. And so David asks around, and he's looking for his number one sniper guy. His name uh, is um, uh, Abashi. Remember Abashi's name. I'm going to say that in the, in the conclusion. So he takes his sniper guy, Abashi, and they tiptoe through the 3,000 troops to the center where Saul is, and they're standing over a sleeping Saul. Now, now, this is when justice comes to Israel. And Abashi, listen to this guy. And Abashi said to David, today God has delivered your enemy into your hands. Now let me pin him to the ground with one thrust of my spear. I won't strike him twice. I'll get him between heartbeats. He won't even spaz. And Abashi is saying, look, 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 I was in the cave. I get it. You can't kill the king but I can kill the king. Everybody wants you to be king, David. You've already been anointed. Look around. I mean, think about this. Look around. This is God's will. Okay, God put them all to sleep. He put them in that cave. There's thousands of caves. He brought you to that cave. This is the second time. This is confirmation. Come on. And God said no. Wait for it. Wait all you want. There's no kaboom. David will have nothing to do with this. Who will raise a hand against the Lord's anointed? Look at verse, there he goes again, verse, uh, verse 9. See, here's the thing. The Bible is to be followed, not just believed. And David says this to Abashi, don't destroy him. Who can lay a hand against the Lord's anointed? There is again, and be guiltless. Even an anointed king that's crazy and jealous and murderous. Matthew Henry says this about this passage. David is a man that prefers his conscience over his interests. David would rather be in pain than in guilt. David makes his choices based on shaving, what he sees in the mirror every morning. That's how he'll make his decisions. In verse 10, he continues and says, Surely as Jehovah lives, he said, the Jehovah himself will strike Saul 
either his time will come and he will die or he will go into battle and perish. The man can slip on a bar of soap, okay? But Jehovah forbid that I should lay a hand on Jehovah's anointed. There it is again. Oh, David's saying, oh, there's going to be justice. But justice isn't mine. Justice is the Lord's, right? I will avenge, says the Lord. The story continues where David gets a distance, a safe distance away from Saul and then shouts and wakes everybody up. And he says this, the Lord rewards every man for his righteousness and his faithfulness. That's where his hope is. The Lord delivered you into my hands again today, but I would not lay a hand on the Lord's anointed. As surely as I valued your life today, may the Lord value my life and deliver me from all these troubles. David says, I know how the deeper physics works. I will not raise a hand against you, and I believe in the deeper physics that he'll reward me. And I, I pray to God that he would intervene and get this to stop. This is why God himself will say about David, David is a man after God's own heart. Because he understands authority. He understands the use of authority and the abuse of authority. He understands whether he's going to submit to authority or whether he's going to blow this thing up. I love coming here to talk about authority. I mean, think about the context that we're in right here. This is, this is, we're, I mean, this is a, it's not even mildly funny, but could we, could I just give you a survey of how we all ended up in this auditorium? In the late 1700s, King George III said no to us on our continent. And we said, we'll just start our own country. And then when Texas was absorbed in the United States, we said, we're going to keep our republic. And that's why if you're new to the state, you need to know that there are always two flags in front of the state buildings, because, and they're at the same height because our flags fly together, not underneath. And if our country ever does something that we don't like, they ever tell us no, we'll just start the republic all over again. We can do that. Wait, it's worse than that. We live in Austin. Where do you guys live? Austin? Austin, Texas? No, just Austin. We rebel against the state that's rebelling against the country. No kidding. If you, if you live here long enough, about every five years, the state government comes in and says to Austin, you can't do that. It's illegal. <laughs> Wait, it gets so much better. Because when you come to Austin and you're looking for a church, right? You're looking for a church inside of an independent city that's part of an independent state that's part of an independent country. I think I'm going to go to a church, an independent church. Because of the 15 to 20,000 Protestant denominations in the country and 33,000 in the world, we wanted to be our own church. Because we didn't want anybody to tell us no. Because then we'd have to blow it up. Welcome to Grace Covenant Church. <laughs> Wait, there's more. Because there's Bible studies and ministries and Sunday school classes within our church that, that are fine and doing well until you say, hey, could, we were wondering if you could move from 915 to 11. <laughs> that ain't the way we roll. We're an independent ministry inside of an independent church, inside of an independent city, inside of an independent state, inside of an independent country. Authority is everywhere. Rebellion to authority is everywhere. It's omnipresent, and it's never stronger than this city. 
I don't know what God's will was for Israel. It's too hard to tell. There is a lot of mayhem and chaos going on. I just know what David knew, what God's will wasn't. It wasn't to kill the king. It wasn't to rebel against authority. It wasn't to bring justice to the day. It was to wait on the Lord. God designed the world so that it would be beautiful and not ugly, so that it would be in harmony and not noise. It would be in order and not in chaos. And for that to happen, the deeper physics, it's relatively simple. There would be authority and then submission to authority. And then when the rebellion happened, then authority could be used or abused, and that will be judged. And there would be submission to authority or rebellion against authority, and that will be judged. There are four authorities in the Bible. Government, family, church, someone, work. So let's just take them, let's just how you apply this. The government, we love our government, don't we? It's, everything's working great until our party doesn't get elected and then let's blow the place up. And friends, we as a country, we won't survive this. And, and not because of just maybe because of God's just judgment, but because of physics of authority. A house divided cannot stand. It, it just can't survive. It won't work. And that's maybe our fate. I, I don't know. But in the family, I, I learned about this idea or this value of authority early on. And I must say that I've only appealed to decisions based on authority three times in our marriage. And two of them were about purchasing a house. And the third one, we just don't have time to talk about. <laughs> but I don't like using authority unless it's for a purpose and it's to serve. When my children were growing up, I was afraid of the abuse of authority because I was such a bully to them. And there were multiple times where when I was tucking them to bed, I would say, I am so sorry that I was so abusive today in, in you know, my place in this house. And I'm sorry, and I'd ask you to forgive me for this abuse of authority. And my kids, were they were so sweet, they'd go, what? <laughs> I just had to say it because I wanted to make sure we got this done. And they were like, can we go to the park tomorrow? Fine, whatever. We moved on. But if you're in a family, there's going to be a call for you to abuse authority, and you can't. And there'll be a call for you to rebel against authority, and you can't. That house can't stay together because a house divided will never survive. And it says, not only because of possible punishment, but it's a matter of conscience. Deeper recesses of your soul, you know better. At work, at the water cooler, I don't know what the will of God is for your life at work, but I know what the will of God is not at work. And that is to help blow the thing up. That's not your place at work. Your place is in submission to authority. And I'll tell you, young people out there, let me tell you a trick. It almost guarantees success. You submit to authority and work hard, you will serve before kings. If you get in trouble for calling people sir and ma'am, you are on the right track of success. Because it is so abnormal in our culture now to understand authority and submission to authority, people will put you in charge in no time. It works. In the church, 
Sunday school classes, the Bible studies, the ministries around here. Everybody loves the leadership. What's not to love? Right? It's us. We're all working together for the same good cause. And then we say, can you move the class from this service to another? Can we change the time you start and stop? Can we help you, you know, with maybe some music selection or something like that? Here's the best part of these conversations. We feel like the Lord is leading us to leave. Really? I don't know what the Lord's will is, but I know what the Lord's will is not. It's not to rebel against the authority of the church because they said no. That's how it works. And that's why there's something so deep within us when we're in submission to authority that wants to get out. I just, listen, I'm, I have to hurry up. Um, I'll just tell you this. I've been on all sides of this. I've been in authority, and I've used it for good to serve. And I've, used it, and I've abused it to get what I wanted fast. I've been in subjection to authority, and I've submitted and I've been in subjection to authority, and I've rebelled. And I want to tell you something. You don't pay the price for obeying the laws of authority, whatever they are. You pay the price for disobeying the laws of authority. It never returns dividends. It never works out. You are haunted. Use your authority to serve for a purpose. Do not rebel against authority. You're picking a fight with a God in something that he loves. If you want to be like David, there'll be times when people throw spears at you. Don't pick them up. You want a heart like David? There will, people that will, there will be people that betray you, and you'll have to choose not to resent them. This is not easy. It is difficult. There's a wonderful book called Three Kings by Gene Edwards, and he tells the story of the three kings, David, or Saul, David, and um, Solomon. And he says this. This is a conversation late in the kingdom period with David, and he's having this conversation with Abashi. And Abashi is just catching up to this understanding of the value of authority. And so David's talking to him and saying, look, I didn't lift a finger to be made king. God put me here. I'm not responsible to take or keep authority. It's all God's kingdom. And I want to repeat this. I desire God's will more than I desire his position of leadership. He might be through with me, and I'm okay with that. And then Abashi looks at David, and now with great admiration, and he says this. Thank you, good king. And David says, well, why? He says, not for what you've done, but what you've not done. Thank you for not throwing spears. Thank you for not rebelling against the kings. Thank you for not exposing a man in authority when he was so very vulnerable. Thank you for not dividing the kingdom, for not attacking someone who betrayed you. Then he paused. And thank you for suffering and being willing to lose everything. And thank you for giving God a free hand all the way to the end, even to destroy you and your kingdom for his good pleasure. He says, thank you for being an example to all of us. And that's why God calls David a man after God's own heart. Let's be like that. Lord Jesus, King Jesus, 
Let us have the heart of servants in a monarchy where we just enjoy doing what we're told. Lord, cleanse us of our American independence, our Texas stature, our Austin citizenship, that we might be free from rebellion, that we might enjoy what it means to serve. Lord, help us understand the value of authority, the submission to authority, and how we express our faith by serving you. Let us pray that we could live in such a way that we would do what the authority says on earth as it is in heaven. We hope that we might please you, not in our beliefs, but in our conduct. Not just in our beliefs. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.